You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 300. Life is full of challenges. How you handle these challenges, it's what builds character. Never be afraid to be who you are. Aaron Brockovich. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft, it's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Well, guys, today on the show, we have Academy Award nominee Susanna Grant. And Susanna wrote the Oscar-winning film Aaron Brockovich, as well as 28 Days with Sandra Bullock, In Her Shoes with Cameron Diaz, Catch and Release with Jennifer Gardner, Charlotte's Web, The Soloist with Robert Downey and Jamie Foxx, and so, so, so much more. Suzanne and I have a deep sit-down conversation about her process, her journey as a screenwriter, and advice that she gives to up-and-coming screenwriters trying to break into the business today. So without any further ado, let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Susanna Grant. How are you doing, Susanna? I'm great. Alex, how are you? I'm doing very good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I've been a fan of your work from 28 Days to uh, In Her Shoes. I love romantic comedies. Of course, Aaron Brockovich. And even Pocahontas, too, when I was growing really? up. In the, well, in the 90s. I have some remember, quibbles. <laughs> with well, yeah, I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. But even but you were coming in on, on Pocahontas, you were coming in at that wave of the 90s. Yeah. Eight, late 80s, early 90s, the Little Mermaid, Lion King, Aladdin. It was just like it was printing money. Yeah, they were they they were doing really beautiful work and bringing back the movie musical, which was fantastic. And um, Mm -hmm. so I was really happy to be a part of it. And, you know, it's not how it's not how we would make a story about Native Americans today, which shows you that uh, we've. uh, You know, there have been some advances Um, there has, but but I learned a ton. I learned a I have not gone back into animation because animation is not covered by the guild. So, um, oh, it isn't. I don't. No, it's not. It's actually covered by a different union, oddly, which has to do with the history of animation. But um, no, writing for writing for. So, uh, you know, I, I I look at Linda Wolverton, who wrote these huge Disney movies, and the amount of money she has not received for her work that she oh. would have had been a union project. Anyway. That's another story, but I have not worked in animation since, largely because of that. But, um, but it's a really rigorous place to start because the tradition of animation is is that the story artists tell the story, storyboard artists. That was how it was done early in the day at Disney, and um, uh, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken brought in writers, and that was the beginning of this sort of renaissance that they that they brought in. So we were writers. I, I had two partners on that, um, Carl Binder and Philip Lezebnik. And um, but there were also story artists who considered themselves writers. So you would there was a lot of tension in it, which was, uh, you know, good and bad. But there was um, it was incredibly rigorous. You know, there's no scene in that movie that was written any fewer than 30, 35 times. It was just over and over and over. For your first gig, it's really good. It's a it's like a boot camp, you know? 
Yeah, and how does I mean seriously? Because I was going to ask you about Pocahontas, but since we started there, why well, don't we just keep going? Mm -hmm. The the because I have friends who are animators. I've been inside the Disney Studios. I see how they work. Uh, and he told me all about the process and the directors and how they work with it, the storyboard artists. But it must be frustrating as a writer to have storyboard art, basically storyboard artists mm -hmm. dictating story as a writer. And it must have been, just been this really interesting thing to deal with as a as yeah. a, a young writer as well. Yeah. Well, and and. I haven't been there in the sort of post Pixar universe and sure. I, you know, I don't know how they're doing it now. And at the time, you know, the animation tradition is, is very um, profound and, and sacred to people. So you don't want to dishonor that. I was, I was still in film school, you know, when I got that job. So how'd you get the job? <laughs> you know, I, my first year of, Film school, I won the Nickel Fellowship, which is a fellowship that the Academy gives. Um, and that just gives your work more visibility. And then you start um, meeting folks. And I did. And um, I had I was in school. I was still in school. I had a second year of film school. So I would get offered jobs that just smelled like really bad jobs that would go nowhere. And I had the luxury of being able to say no, because I was in film, I, I was in school, you know, so uh, it had to be appealing enough to pull me away from getting my master's, which I want to get. Um, and then eventually, you know, after I said no to a few things from Disney animation, I learned quickly that saying no doesn't mean they'll never ask you again. It just means they'll offer you something better. So eventually <laughs> they came to I mean, they came to me with some ideas like we don't even know what this is. It's just a word. You know, whales, just whales. <laughs> and I thought, no, nah, I don't. That that movie's never ever getting made. By the way, all the things they pitched me before this, I, yeah. I there were about five of them. None uh, of them have gotten made. So really, I, I actually had a wonderful teacher in film school named Jerry Cass, and I would sort of float it by him, and he'd go, mm -mm, "Nope, don't do it, don't do it." Um, and then they called one day and said, "This one has a release date," and I thought, "Man." Nah. All right. Uh, all right. Duck out it's of whole, film school early for something. It's a whole Pocahontas. Yeah, it's a whole the whole Pocahontas thing. I think it works. Yeah, I think we have a release date. It's going to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, I was new and I was green and I was humble, and I had two other writers who were great pals and great writers. And uh, you know, anytime it gets rough, for God's sake, you're doing a Disney animated movie, and you're you know, I I was I was never unaware of how fortunate I was. So even on the difficult days, I was happy to be there. Yeah, it, it's 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 a magical place. I've been in and many times at Disney Animation and it is it's a beautiful wonderful and I've heard stories I remember Tangled was in development for 10 years. Really? They did everything on it. I saw the I saw the the art which was completely different from what we saw. A year before release, stripped it all, start again. And they yeah. did that with every single movie since Snow White. Yeah, they'll they'll take Snow it apart. Oh, yeah. they are not precious. <laughs> and the great thing is when you're working on one of them, mm -hmm. you know, when we were working on Pocahontas, Lion King was in its finishing stages. So we had the advantage of being adjacent to that work, which was tremendous. And then Hunchback was behind us. So we were aware of that as well. And so, um, you know, you, you end up part of this continuum um it was a magical time it was a, that 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 those that five to ten year window of disney animation was pretty remarkable it's yeah, hard for people yeah. to understand because it was pretty much dead in the water yeah it so, was it, until little mermaid showed up and then mm -hmm. we're like oh okay until alan menken and howard ashman came in and said uh, we can do and katzenberg and katzenberg came and in katzenberg. and started and started doing some stuff and there was some yeah, young my animators first like professional meeting was a meeting with jeffrey i think it was at 7 30 in the morning on mother's day sunday <laughs> of course of course there was some rigor to that outfit. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least okay. so so your first writing gig was out of school was straight into disney studios working with it so after mm -hmm. you're done with that whole process you then started working on television you went into party yeah. of five which yeah. you and i i really hadn't lot. had um a plan to work in television. You know, I, I my sort of uh, house of worship growing up is a, it was a, was a movie movie theater. 
We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, so that felt like the sort of form of American storytelling I was dying to be a part of and contribute to. And um, be, that was a conversation I wanted to be a part of. But I got this pilot shown to me that was made by Chris Kaiser and Amy Littman called Party of Five. And it was beautiful. beautiful. And it felt like my sensibility and they were the best people in the world. And um, I didn't, you know, and so I, I went and did that for a bit. Which yeah, you, you did that for a few years. And so let me ask you, what were some of the biggest lessons working in that writer's room and and really kind of because it's one thing is being a feature writer and another mm -hmm. one's being a TV writer. It's mm -hmm. it's a grind. It's a daily grind with television as opposed yeah. to feature screenwriting, which is you take your time. You can dance. Oh, a it's bit. also a daily grind. <laughs> it is. No, no, it is. No, I was about Just to say a lonelier daily grind. It's, <laughs> right. But a lot of times if you're doing a spec or something, you could you could be on that spec for five years. This yeah. is like there's a deadline and you gotta go. You gotta go. There and, is. Yeah. What'd you learn? Um, it's funny. When I look back at it, I really think of the lessons I learned less being about uh craft and um being more about how do you how do you choose to live this writer's life? That was a remarkably wonderful group of people who were kind to each other and supportive of each other and funny. And you could, you could share your idiocy with them and they would only love you more, you know, and this is exactly the kind of environment you want for a beautiful collaborative um, workplace. And it sort of set in my head that as a bar, and I've really actually been quite fortunate in that I've had very few um, professional collaborations that have not felt like that. I mean, I've had them, you know, and, and you sort of work through them as quickly as possible. But, uh, but that was the biggest lesson there that for me, not for everyone, there are people who thrive in chaos and conflict and their mm -hmm. best work comes out of it. For me, that is the environment that brings out my best work. So that was one lesson. And the other was you just, keep working on it till it's good enough. You know, you just keep working on it till it's good enough. And I would put the scenes up on my wall that because you sort of outline it together. And I would have a, a bar for myself, I wouldn't put a red check mark on it saying it was done. Um, until I had surprised myself in the scene and turned it into something that I hadn't anticipated, or found something within it that I hadn't anticipated would be there from the outline. You know, so it just I I I found uh, I guess a bar that made the work feel alive and interesting as opposed to flat and dead. You know, the scene where X happens. Well, if it's the scene where X happens, how can you make that alive? How can you surprise yourself? How can you surprise your viewer? How can you um, find an element of it that? Uh, you didn't know was going to be there going in, you know, which is the most exciting stuff to watch where humanity sort of peaks out unexpectedly. So you mentioned that, you know, you've obviously had some not so home harmonious uh, collab collaborations. I think in the business in general, we all have that. We all have to deal with that at one point or another. Do you have any advice on how to walk that path a bit and depending on collaborators and who you're working with, because we're talking about there's the difference between a PA's collaborating with a director and a writer collaborating with a director or an executive producer on a show, things like that. How do yeah. you deal at that higher level when you're uh, with collaborators? Boy, it really all depends on who that collaborator is and what their particular approach to work and a work environment is. Um, I've had ones where I've, I've, I've worked with a director where it felt like uh, how to say this delicately. Ego was a big, a big, Stop a big it. presence in the room at the beginning. No, no. And <laughs> um, and then just by sort of sitting there, it felt like there were three people in the room at the beginning: me, the director, and the ego. But if you just sit there wow. calmly and say, and just don't, don't, I, I don't dance with it. You know, don't, don't dance with it. Don't engage it. Don't fight it. Just it, it, if, if the creative vision matches, 
gradually, sometimes that will just ease its way out of the room, you know, but sometimes it won't. Sometimes it's just like, sometimes you are working with a chaos monster and you will never see eye to eye. You know, there are a couple projects where I look back on it and I realized I was holding on to my job so hard that I mm. lost grip of the, of the film, you know, and some, I, you know, there, there's one movie I look back on and I think, oh, I should have walked. Not for me, but maybe, maybe if I had walked, the director, this is an original too, like I would never walk off an original, but maybe if I had walked, I mean, the director's always going to win, right? Maybe if I'd walked, they would have found something that wasn't what I wanted it to be, but was better than what it ended up being, which was sort of a mishmash, you know, of mm. um, try a mishmash between that director's idea of what it should be and mine. You know, and when something like that happens, how blamed are you as a writer to for the success oh, of that project? You know, project? the good and bad of the good and bad of the sort of director worship is that not so much. I mean, it it, it was a good spec. It was a good. It was a good original script, and it wouldn't have gone into production if it hadn't been and but it's just one of those things if you guys you don't share a vision sometimes it won't come out the way you want it to and a lot of times i've noticed is that ego when the ego is the third i love that term by the way the third ego is the third person in the room it it's because of either fear or insecurity mm -hmm. and once they feel that like oh this person is not going to hurt me that we're on the same page it does kind of recess a little bit yeah i i had the really wonderful good fortune of working with curtis hansen oh and he was just wonderful. the most wonderful man and wonderful filmmaker and he had a i think i learned a lot from him because he would point out something in the script that didn't quite work quite makes sense. And I would say, yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. And I'd fight and hold on. And then he'd say, <laughs> you always lean in really kindly and say, no, 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 Susanna, this is a good thing. This means we get to go find a better thing together. It's great. And he would see every problem and he would always say, no, 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 this is a good thing. And you make a whole movie with someone who thinks that way and it starts to inform your own thinking and you start to see problems as good things. And, and, um, I think that does feel less threatening sometimes to to partners. Mm. If if you walk in saying, I know that it, things can always get better. Let's keep making it better till we run out of time. You know, and that's that's kind of the TV mentality as well. The TV writer. Right. That, right. Yeah. Not as much the screen, not as much the features writers, from my experience and from what I've who I've talked to. It's not as much. It should be. But it's well, not as much sometimes. I mean, feature writers are so rarely given the opportunity to have that too in their work. So, and and often have the experience of it not getting better or not getting closer to what they had wanted it to be at the outset, but further from it. So, you know, I, working with Curtis was a it was a blessing because that's n not the norm. I think, um, yeah, it's and not. he was incredibly <laughs> lovely and generous. He was wonderful. He's a wonderful, wonderful uh, filmmaker. Now, uh, you know, you did write a little film called Aaron Brock something or other the other uh, a little while ago. And uh, how did that project, Aaron Brockovich, come to to life? Because it, you are credited the only writer on that. So that, I'm assuming this is an original or were you hired? It was an original. Yeah, it was. Okay. But it was um, I had uh, I had just written Ever After. And it was very, Classic. which I love. And that, I'm not the only writer on that. The director came in and he did some rewriting with his partner. So there are three credited writers on that. But um, but I had just done that. And it was, I love it, but it was very sort of precious and delicate. Sweet. And, I mean, it's she's meaty too, which is good. But I just wanted to, I just had in my head that the next thing I wanted to write was, I had this phrase, kick-ass broad in my head. And I don't know why. I was like, I don't know. I just some kick-ass broad. And I went to uh, have a general meeting at Jersey Pictures and Gail Lyon was there and told me this story. And um, they had met Aaron through a chiropractor because, you know, that car accident that starts the movie actually walked Aaron's back out. And she then would go to a chiropractor. Well, Michael Schamberg, who was like the president or something at, of, of Jersey at the time, his his wife went to the same chiropractor. So that's how they heard 
Aaron's of course. Story. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Oh, so they, they had optioned it. And I was, you know, I, I don't know that. I mean, maybe Pocahontas had come out. Um, but it certainly there was nothing that would suggest that I was the right person for the film, except for that I knew that I was. And um, and they I think they said at the time, well, actually, we're out to we're out to Cali Corey. And I was like, all right. All right. So in two weeks, I called up and said, hey, just wondering if you'd heard from Cali. And they'd say, yes, yes. Now we're out to Scott Frank. And I'd sit for two weeks and then I'd call back. And it was um, I think my polite persistence wore them down. I just kept calling and saying, did, wow. did that other superstar writer pass yet? And um, eventually enough of them passed. And I had checked in often enough that they said, all right, well, we'll let you meet her. And then Aaron and I got on like a house on fire. So, so. And it just, and just took off from there. Um, there's, and there's the dialogue in that movie is so beautiful. I love, I still remember that scene of like numbers. I'll tell you some numbers that whole I was just sitting there in awe because I'm like, that's such a wonderful comeback to a guy obviously hitting on her in this. Yeah. It was so, so beautiful. And Julia Roberts was and a force their of performances. Her and Aaron uh, and her, the scene are just wonderful. And, you it, know, but it, it, directed it perfectly. And, you know, that's one of those. Yeah, you know, I had two films in production at the same time. And one of them I was on the set many of the days um and the other one and i was also pregnant so i wasn't there that much honestly and 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 then aaron brockovich was shooting at the same time and i was never on that set and um aaron brockovich looks exactly like the movie i had in my head and the one wow. where i was on the set every day looks nothing like the movie that i had in my head so you know does being on the set make a difference i don't know you know i don't know <laughs> that's can sometimes but if it's not the right team so why do you sort of get they got it well stephen got what you were doing and that you guys were both mind melded apparently that got that, that same he, vision he, he, he saw what i saw and i don't know how much of it was suggested on on the page and how much of it just was the luck of um you know, two people who who happened to see something the same way, though, though, didn't really talk about it that much, you know. Right. So what was it like working with Steven? Because that was a heck of a year uh, for him, if I remember correctly. He also was did traffic. Tra he also did that other little movie called Traffic the same year. It was like well, it's unheard of what he was what was going on in his career at the time. And he's a legendary filmmaker and he's yeah. he's a fantastic film. filmmaker. What? How? Did I didn't work that closely with him. So really, it was just. Not at all. Really? That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. I mean, you met with him, obviously, a bit. Yeah, right. I did. Yeah. You yeah. met with him, but he just read the script is like, I'm good. Let's go. Yeah, yeah basically. <laughs> I mean, nothing's nothing's that simple, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so then uh, the Oscars come around uh -huh. and, you, and you get a nomination. I did. And, and what is what's that like <laughs> at that point in your career? You're only like what? Five, six years in at this point? I don't know. Was I don't know. I guess. I guess. Yeah. It was interesting at the at the premiere. Um, I saw Amy Pascal, who was always has always been ex extraordinarily lovely and great. And, you know, we've had a nice um done a lot of nice work together. But I saw her, this was early on, and I knew her. And after the premiere, I was filing out of it, and she pulled me over and she said, This never happens. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe it does and maybe it will again. Like she was just telling me, this is remarkable. Appreciate it. Um, uh, you know, it's 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 wonderful. It's it's great and strange. And 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 you think this is, you know, something I've dreamed about. And then also, does it matter at all? You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. were you that, that clear were you that clear headed at that time in your life because i know as we as we all get older we look back and like ah you know but when you're younger coming up like the oscar the oscar the oscar you know yeah it I, it's probably about my family of origin but those were not our values like growing up they just 
they just weren't not mm-hmm. better, not worse. They were just other. So um I did, you know, I, I brought my brother and sister to it and they thought they thought it was a kick, you know. So sure. It's fun. It was whatever. a fun ride. It was, it was just a, a fun kick. ride. It was a, so it isn't like I, I don't want to denigrate the academy at all. It's it's a lovely thing they do. And it's it's nice. And it's also incredibly surreal. We were sitting at the <laughs> ceremony, my husband and I, and um, and he said, boy, if you dropped down from outer space into this theater, you would think that this is our God. <laughs> what an amazing, what an amazing observation. He's so, so it is. It is a bit of that, but to be you know, fair. it's lovely, and and the the academy is great, and the you know to have the fellowship of uh, you know all these remarkable people who've told the stories that ordered your brain growing up and 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 into adulthood is just an incredible luxury, and to be part of that community. And, is to, and to be fair, and to be fair to your husband, uh, he's not wrong. At all, he's at all. not wrong. No, he's not wrong at no. all. And in Hollywood, that is it's, other than the dollar. <laughs> the Oscar is quite close second, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> so you you go through the ceremony, you go through all of this, you know, all the hoopla. Then because I've had many Oscar winners and Oscar nominees on the show before, and I love asking what happened after. How did the town treat you afterwards when you got you know all this? Because the spotlight's on you, and it's there's a window. There's a window of time where you're the it girl, the it guy. What was that like? What was that kind of journey for you? Honestly, it just, uh, um, I'm I'm a bit of a hustler and I don't ever like, (laughs) honestly, any, um, I don't like thinking about awards. I don't have any, I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled to have received some awards in my time, but I don't have any of them any place I can see them because I just don't, I, I don't know that that would do anything good for my head. So what I am aware of is that it upped your price. Like, it's great. <laughs> your agent asked for more money. And I think writers should get more money always. Yes. So if you mm-hmm. can do that, if you can bump up your price, great. Uh, then just keep rocking and rolling. Uh, <laughs> because it's, um, no, I'm, 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 I'm being more diminishing of it. I guess what I mean is it probably did stuff, but I'm so afraid of resting on laurels and it never, ever, ever makes the writing easier. In fact, I think it might make it harder it, it, if you it, it pay does. attention to it. So, yeah. um, you know, it doesn't make any difference if you were out, you know, at the Vanity Fair party till two the night before you're going to sit down at your computer and it's not going to be one iota easier not one iota so in terms of my work no difference yeah it 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 almost the work itself it almost seems because again speaking to so many who have done gone through what you've gone through it seems almost like a burden in a certain way because now i didn't win so it wasn't a burden you know what cameron crowe's burden yeah, it was yeah, exactly. But but the the um the 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 burden of like if you get it if it gets in your head of like, yeah. oh my God, what's next? Oh, I have to do this or I have to do that. It, it does kind of tweak with you a little bit. But one thing I've I've really fascinated by talking to so many, you know, accomplished screenwriters like yourself uh, and filmmakers, they're still a neuroses in their work. They still don't think in many ways that they're like, it's still tough. I still don't think I'm good enough. I still think someone's going to walk into the room at any second and go, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be in here. Security, get her out. Is that kind of the vibe? Do you still feel in many ways? Well, the second part, not anymore. You know, the second part, I mean, I've been doing this a long time and I've got a lot of (laughs) friends and we all, we all. Security's not taking you out. No, but absolutely. It's still challenging and you're still facing a wall every day, but that's, um, a, the fun of it, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like fun, but it is what makes it interesting. And B, I don't think the work is for me is much good without that. Mm. I think if I, it's sort of like what I was saying earlier about what I discovered about writing scenes in party of five, if I 
feel like I can do something and yeah, I'll just whip this one off. It's not going to be good. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. It won't. And I always have to feel as if there's something I'm trying to figure out. Uh, and, and I like a little bit of, of panic associated with my, uh, with my work. Uh, very early on, I, I knew Herb Sargent, who was Alvin Sargent's brother. And um, I was talking to him very, very early on in my career. And he said, oh, yeah, every time Alvin takes a job, he calls me up and says, I can't do it. I got to give the money back. Now, I think Alvin Sargent has written some of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. And he was a lovely man. And I thought, okay, Alvin Sargent is tying himself in knots and saying he has to give the money back. Maybe that is not... um, a glitch in the in my system. Maybe that doesn't mean I don't belong here. If Alvin Sargent has proceeded with that and done the work he's done, maybe it is in fact an integral part of good work. So that was an early gift. Do you, when you're writing, do you have the experience of sometimes being in that flow where when you're done writing, you look at it and go, I don't know who just wrote that, but that's fantastic. I I don't look at my work right when I write it that carefully. What I tend to do is look at it the next morning, mm-hmm. look at the prior day's work. And usually I go over the prior few days work before I start writing. And it is kind of exciting when you look at something and you don't really recognize it. It's pretty great. Yeah. It does. Ha- and it's kind of like what we all strive for is yeah. to have that, yeah. that flow moment that you just... Yeah are there and it just kind of goes, do you, what is your schedule? Like when you write, do you actually have a time? Do you like, you know, like Eric I Roth do. has like this time and he sits on his yeah, desk. I do. I've got a pretty set <laughs> day. You know, I've spent some, it's, it's, I'm actually just getting back into it now because I'm finishing post on a movie I directed, but it is, I have a ridiculously early wake up, but actually many writers I know have this wake up. I get up at four 30. I make a cup of coffee. I work for, well, it used to be when, when my kids were at home, I would work for three hours and then that was long enough to get into some sort of groove so that I could, you know, go do the breakfast thing, get folks off to school okay, and come back and still feel as if I was invested in the work. Anything less than that, it would be hard to get back into it. So I needed about three hours to feel like, oh, I got to get back to work, you know? Um, and then I, I usually write till about midday ish, you know, 12, one, something like that. And then, um, and then, you know, business stuff, emails, fucking around what <laughs> happens in the afternoon. <laughs> Fair enough. So let me, let me ask you a, a very simple question. What, what is it about writing that you love? What keeps you, cause this is, you know, tough. It's tough. Very early on in life, like as a kid, I got this idea that this whole life thing was a massive ripoff, that you only got to live one of them. Like there's, there are infinite numbers of, this was before the notion of multiverses entered our consciousness and who knows, maybe that changes everything. But but I thought it's just a, a ripoff. I only get to be me and I don't get to be that cowboy and I don't get to be that you know, that um, sanitation worker. And I don't get to be that. Like, how is, that seems so unfair. It just seemed like someone had presented a massive massive buffet and said, you can have one shrimp and that's it, you know? And so um, just imagining other existences started really, really early. And for a while I thought, uh, for a little while, I thought I might be, and I might go at it via acting. Um, and I did that for a little bit after school, but it just dispositionally, the life didn't work for me. And, mm. and, um, and I got, I got bored doing it. You know, I do a show two nights in a row. And by the third night, I think I just did this. Why am I doing it? Again? <laughs> so, so you're clearly, so I didn't have the right mentality of, you're like every night. I don't know. I'm, life, I'm life, on, life on Broadway is not for you. Is basically what you're no, saying. like anything more than a two night run, and I was out. 
<laughs> very short career. That, yeah, but then I was I was, you know, fairly lost in life and didn't know what I was going to do because I didn't I also thought I might be a journalist, which is also another way to sort of gather up experience. Mm-hmm. Um and then that I that didn't seem like the thing either. And then I just like I moved to San Francisco, which is what you do when you have no idea what you're doing because no one else there knew what they were doing either. And um and I was really lonely. So I tried writing a script and I thought, oh, oh, this I could do. This I could do for a long time. Like just keep creating a world over and over of my imagination. Yeah. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. It it seems like you had a thirst for life and this is the way you kind of suck the bone marrow, the marrow out of the bone of life in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do think it's important to say they were fairly torturous years finding mm-hmm. that, you know, and I talked to a lot of young people who sort of, um, you know, just just are hungry, understandably hungry to figure out how to get to a, a place. And, and you really have to go through some gnarly stuff to find out who you really want to be. And, and maybe they always want to say, listen to yourself. Maybe this will be what you want to be, but maybe something else will come out of the blue and be open to it. Keep your ears open. Cause if I had just had like my nose to the grindstone with acting, I would have had a very unhappy life, you know? Um, so, so, you know, the uncertainty and the fear and the, the, panic and sleepless nights and all that, I, I think they're important to pay attention to and they can lead you someplace good, you know, mm-hmm. if you listen. If if you listen, that's the very key point there. Now, you got a chance to uh, to direct the film, your first film, which is Catch mm-hmm. and Release, which I loved, mm-hmm. by the way. Oh, uh, so I, I saw that film. Funny I loved it. Movie. It's a fun, little, wonderful little, wonderful little film. What was your biggest lesson directing because i know you directed a bit on television but it's a bit different yeah a bit different well really it's um my lesson from that film was less about directing although there are a bunch of of those and more about um being clear on the movie you're making and amy pascal that was a sony movie and she and i have talked about it since then but that movie should have been a five million dollar sundance movie but she gave me, I think it was $30 million to make the movie. Um, and um, and I kept thinking, doesn't feel like a $30 million movie, but she's writing the check. So I'm not going to argue. Um, and then as we got close to shooting, it, it became clear. And I guess we just hadn't spoken to each other clearly enough beforehand that she she had expectations of a kind of romantic comedy that I didn't think were inherent in the script. And so all during production, we were trying to sort of pull it into something that would hold on to what I loved and deliver on what what she felt she had bought. And like I said, we've she and I have talked about it plenty since then. And it has a lot of lovely little moments in it, but I think we spent too much money on it, you know, and so it has an ending that that is sort of a classic romantic comedy ending, which wasn't where we started. Um, just trying to deliver on a sort of studio product right. that that it probably shouldn't have tried to be. So that's that's the lesson there is just be really clear up front with what movie you're making with the people who are giving you the money, <laughs> because, <laughs> because eventually they're going to want what they bought. <laughs> exactly. And as they say, uh, he, mean you driving to the set every day, like rewriting the ending way too much. Um, but uh, but I had some great, great partners on that. I had um, I was working with a cinematographer named John Lindley, whom I've worked with many times since then. And uh, he made a bunch of movies. And every now and then I would just sidle over and say, so and just ask him a question he always had a great answer so when you're reading a script when you're shooting a film do you how how can you tell which scenes are not going to make it in the final cut and he said to me well if it says flashback (laughs) and so since then i've thought i put a very high bar on any flashback i use because somebody who had made 20 movies before me said he shot a bunch of flashbacks that didn't make it in cuts why is that 
you know, just a lot of wisdom like that. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Um, night shoots. Yeah, night shoots. Rainy night shoots. Try to get those out of the script <laughs> for production. Funny you should say that. I have <laughs> pictures of us at night in just looking like drowned rats because we were in Vancouver. We're, of course, it rains constantly. Um, but but I really love all the performances in that oh, movie. Yeah. I think everyone does a beautiful job. And um, I think I learned also that I don't think I... Um, I don't think I had fun doing it for about the first half of the shoot. I think I was so intent on being ready and prepared and Mm -hmm. professional and, you know, successful at the job that I that I forgot to have fun for a bit. And actually having fun for me uh, is a really important part of that job. It makes you relaxed. It makes other people relaxed. It is a fun job. It's an incredibly fun job. So it should be fun. Um, and, and you know, relaxing. There's always a feeling I have at the beginning of any scene of, oh, God, I hope it works, you know, before you shoot the first yeah. out of it. And, and the play when it doesn't quite, and the play of finding, finding that, again, that unexpected thing within it. And, um, is really enjoyable, really enjoyable, really fun. So as directors, you know, there's always that one day on set that you feel the entire world's going to crash it down around you. Now that should be every day if you're doing your job right. But there's that one day that you're just like, I don't know if we're going to make it today. I don't know if I'm going to make my day. I don't know if I'm going to get this shot. You know, what was that day for you and how did you overcome it? On catch and release? Yeah. You know, I... I'm going to preface this by saying that one of my I've heard it's very good in terms of longevity, but one of my qualities is that I do not remember bad stuff that well. That's excellent. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, God, I, no, I can remember there was a scene we were shooting. that was supposed to be the last scene. And, you know, like I said, I, I just kept trying to deliver an ending that would fit with the movie. And and um, we ended up reshooting it because. I knew it wasn't that good and the actors knew it wasn't that good. It Uh wasn't what it should be. And none of us were saying it out loud. We were just trying to deliver on it. And it was this like this big, it just, it was, it was, it's, it's that when you're the only thing that's uncomfortable is when you're doing something, you're trying to tell yourself it's working and it doesn't. So I, I stopped, stopped doing that then. Um, Yeah, that was, that was a bad day. Did you, but we we reshot it. So yeah, when you go through when you're going through that though, it does take a certain level of confidence within yourself in the skill set you have to either say, stop, this is not working. We need to just stop it from here. But this was your first big It was my first thing. I didn't know to do that. I should yeah. I, I would do that in well, a you, heartbeat now. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Like we're wasting film, we're wasting time. Let's just stop and figure out if this is worth our while. Yeah. And, and on the set with a with an amazing cast that you have, or where anytime you've directed, have you had to deal with opposing uh, opinions of what the story should be, mm-hmm. <laughs> and having to fight whether it be crew members, whether it be studios, whether it be actors? How do you overcome that as a director? Sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. Right? You win some, and you lose some. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, look, you have to accept that it's a collaborative art form, right? And you're hiring people not just for their face and body, but for their inner life. And and like I said with with the when I was those two films before, you never really know until you get into the sandbox with someone if they if if you have the same idea of what you're building, you know? Um so and sometimes it turns into something else that is different than what you had in mind, but is but is really remarkable too. You know, there was one performance and I won't name it, but the first couple of days I was thinking, oof, um, <laughs> this is, this feels really different than what I had in mind, but she seems really committed to it. It ended up being a fantastic performance. She won awards for it. It was, it, it was so, 
you know, you have to leave yourself open to the idea that your partner has a great idea and, and it might be, it might challenge your idea. And sometimes, sometimes it makes it better and, and you just have to be alert to when it's not doing that, you know? Yes. I think one of the themes of this conversation is listen to yourself, listen to the gut, listen to your instincts for both both those sides, whether it's something like, I think this is going to go awry and going to crash into a wall, or I feel there's something here. I don't know what it is. Let me just step back a little bit and let's see what yeah. happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's all you have, right? It's a, <laughs> everything what? came from your gut. It's just... Um, and I, 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 I think that the conscious mind, when it comes mm -hmm. to creativity, is probably the least important element. You know, I try to write. The reason I write when I write at that hour is that I think I'm still kind of asleep. You know, there's part of your sleeping brain that's still engaged, and I, I, I get my coffee all set the night before, so I don't have to do much. I can go pretty quickly from sleep to work because I think you're unconscious and your subconscious are more alive at that time after before you've you know made lists and phone calls and cooked eggs and whatever else you're doing that's boring that's a very interesting thing though because you're right you're kind of like in that in between sleep and awake stage mm -hmm. your brain hasn't really turned on yet so yeah. it's not the noise of the crap that we have to deal with the voices yeah. in our head and all that yeah. stuff is a little bit quieter so you can kind of just tap into whatever that ether is to get yeah. the ideas and the and the flow correct yeah and you also can convince yourself at 4 30 in the morning that you're the only person awake on the planet you know yes. it just feels like it's just you and the moon and you know great fantastic now you also you also pro you also worked on a little film called charlotte's web I did, which is yeah. is such a beautiful film. I mean, it's such a beautiful story. Uh, how did you approach adapting literally one of the biggest classic children's classic yeah. books ever? How do you well, approach that? Well, it's interesting because in the beginning, um, I, I spent a lot of time in Maine on the actual lake where E.B. White wrote. So I, I'm um, very reverential of his work and that work in particular. And I thought, okay, straight up faithful, loyal. And I got about halfway through the script and I read it and it was just dead. It was just flat and dead and lifeless. And I thought, okay, <laughs> that's not going to work. <laughs> so I infused it with just, with just more life. And I, I thought the book will exist as long as humans exist. This book will never go out of print. Everyone will read it, love it. This has to, it's a different medium. It has to have different um, dimension to it. So I did that. And then I don't remember what happened. It could have been that I went off to make catch and release. At some point I ended up having to leave and Carrie Kirkpatrick came in, who's a wonderful writer and, and, um, a very funny writer and he he sort of um he he brought a whole other you know element to it as well so um so that's that's the thing you just can't feel like you are just typing the book <laughs> it won't I think it won't have the life it it needs it's the same thing when you're writing a story about a real person you know you have to i i the first time I did it was with Erin Brockovich and I knew her and I really liked her and really admired her. And I would start writing and I would think, well, I'm not, I'm not sure what she would do here. Maybe I should ask Erin. I'm not sure what she should do. And then I thought, God, I feel like I'm writing with handcuffs on. So I decided in my head, there are two Erins. There's the Erin whom I really enjoy and, and um, admire. And then there's the Aaron I'm writing and they're totally different. And I'm just going to trust that I know her well enough. And I am not, I'm interested in just representing her truthfully, but that's, but it's, but she, this one's mine. And, and I ended up with a much more 
faithful representation of her than I would have had I not given myself that license. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Yeah, and that's a, that is a mistake I think a lot of people who adapt do is they whether the real life person or a real life story or yeah. a book because I mean I remember watching The Godfather behind the scenes and watching what Francis did with the book and he just I mean what he he pulled out what he wanted he yeah yeah he was he was constructing a blueprint and it was wonderful to see his process it was amazing yeah but you really have to be master and commander when you're writing something you have to be it has to be your world you're in charge nobody over you it's your and obviously then it goes into production and then you're making a film and then other voices but when you are writing that script you have to feel it's you're in charge and you're the ultimate authority on it. Now, if you had a chance to go back and talk to that young film student, free Pocahontas, what advice would you give her? Well, none, because it worked out really well. <laughs> so obviously, if I had known more then, maybe I wouldn't have. Um, I don't know. You know, I used to worry. I used to worry a lot about. I mean, I would, you know. I would turn in a script on Friday and I would be apoplectic until Monday. And so I think um, I, I don't I don't do that anymore. Obviously, I want people to like my work always, mm -hmm. but I don't turn myself into, you know, knots over it. Um, and I, I may try to tell myself ease up a little, but I don't know. Maybe that level of anxiety is what pushed me to make my work better than it would have been otherwise. So I, yeah, I, I wouldn't, wouldn't say anything different. Fair, fair enough. Right? I mean, yeah. you can't, you, I, I have no quibble with how my life is going these days. And if every miserable step along the way is what I needed to get here, I take them all, you know, isn't, isn't that a great life lesson? Because a lot of people want to avoid all the bad stuff. I'm like, but the bad stuff will make you grow if the bad stuff exactly. is what makes you gets you to that and also gives you character to be a better writer <laughs> yeah and then when that's what you share that's what people respond to you know mm -hmm. the, the whole point of these stories is for people to feel seen you know to people for people to just to make the world a little less lonely you know mm -hmm. um people watch something and say oh yeah i feel that too maybe i'm not the only one who feels that maybe i'm not the only one going to us and, you, and you're not gonna you're not gonna do that without living hard into the in the diff difficulties of life you know mm -hmm. without question i'm going to ask you a few questions to ask all of my guests okay what advice would you give a filmmaker or screenwriter starting in the business today um i struggle with this one a bit because the on-ramps are are different now than they were when I was starting, you can make your own films so cheaply now. And so I would, I would tell people to do that as much as possible, but mm -hmm. the quality of your work remains the same. Be, be hard on yourself. I don't mean punishing of yourself on a personal level, but be demanding of your work, set your bar high. I do this thing at the end of every script. When I think it's ready, I read it as if I were an actor. And I had a lot of options and um, and I try to figure out if I have a lot of options, am I going to do this one before all those other great options? And um, and that is a that's a way I hold my work to a, a, what I think is a higher standard. Um, so I would find those ways you can you can push yourself to make your work as good as it can be because nothing's worse than putting work out there that isn't ready that you could have made better and then you're just disappointed in yourself and you're not getting yourself where you want to be be, be do your best work do your best work Fair <laughs> isn't enough. that Fair I mean, <laughs> rough and very school marmy but that's what my <laughs> advice is <laughs> now what is the lesson that took you the longest to learn whether in the film industry or in life Oh, golly. Oh, golly. I wish I'd paid attention to these before we spoke. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to have to come back to that one. We'll hold, we'll hold it. We'll hold it. Hold there it. For a All right. Um, 
What is what did you learn from your biggest failure? That I can survive failure. <laughs> That's a good lesson to learn. That there are worse things than failure. Honestly, it it can be rough if you are achievement oriented and and failure averse. It can be painful, but that failure is not death. Failure is often something you can learn a lot from. It is the process. It's part of the process. You have to fail. You know, if you win all the time, you learn nothing. And they're great. There are there is golden failure. It's painful, and it's a, the other thing is that our work is public. So so failure is public, and so you feel embarrassed, and you know whatever. But there is real gold in failure. Looking at something and say, okay, well then next time, I won't do that. <laughs> And what are three screenplays that every screenwriter should read? Okay, well, first of all, every screenwriting logistical problem is solved somewhere within the script of Tootsie. So, yes, <laughs> yes. just uh, what learn Tootsie when you hit a wall, think what did they do in Tootsie, and you'll find some way that one of those I think it was six writers figured out. <laughs> A logistical challenge. So Tootsie is a good one. Witness, because oh. it's spectacular and it shows you how little dialogue you actually need um, to make a moment, moment meaningful. Um, gosh, it's hard. It's hard not to say Godfather Part Two, right? right. <laughs> uh, one and two, you could put them put together. That's a, that's a okay, cheat. Good. Yes, yeah, a cheat. You can put what, one and two are considered. The same for me. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't watch. I mean, that's, I mean, all is known. But then there, there are ones that I just adore. Uh, you know, all the president's men, every scene forces you into the next scene. There's no point. You can't drop into all the president's men and not stay till the end. It is right. the most propulsive movie. And to look at that and think, how did they do that? Fantastic. And then there's, I'm giving, I'm giving you more than three. Please then go for it. Um, Running on Empty by Naomi Foner. Yeah. Just, yeah. Fan, just the most beautiful movie. And it's a great opening. You meet River Phoenix and he's playing Little League Baseball. And this is a guy who is not attached to anything because his family, if, for those people, his, his family is on the run. Um, and he can't really play baseball because he's never been part of it, but he's playing anyway. And someone says to him, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to quote it accurately, but one of the first lines he says, someone says to him, why do you even play? And he says, baseball is my life. And it's the most wonderful first line for a character, because in that moment with this guy who has not been allowed to put down roots anywhere in that moment, baseball is his life. And it's, it's, it's shallow. Mm-hmm. And he's, it's such a great first character introduction. So that's another one too. I could go on all day, but we will. I mean, Chinatown, Network, I mean, Shawshank. I mean, you could just keep going. Network is the movie that got me into movies. I should have said that one. Is that Nashville? How about Nashville? Nashville. Altman. I mean, I mean, the player. (laughs) I love the player. I just love watching the player. (laughs) They don't do those pitch. They don't. Yeah, of course. They don't do those pitch sessions anymore like they do in the player, do they? I think they do. But they don't buy pitches as much as they used to. No, they don't. They don't. Well, it depends on who you are. I mean, sure, I think of course. They, they're probably not like that anymore. No. Yeah. Those those the, and let me ask you, the days of like the 90s, the Shane Black days and the Joe Esterhouse days where they were just dropping two mil, three mil, four mil, five mil on, on spec scripts. Mm-hmm. Those days are pretty much they are gone. gone. I think gone. I mean, with spec script can still do really well. Still got, yeah, there's still there's a yeah. million, two million, but they're rare. Before it was just like yeah. water. Yeah, I, I feel like um, I had this theory uh, in the first couple decades of doing this that there was, <laughs> it was um, what I call, called the pile of stupid money and it moved. <laughs> and when I first started, the pile of stupid money was all in specs, in film specs, right? Interesting. And it was just like, I don't know where the money was coming from, but it was massive amounts for, and then the pile of stupid money moved into TV overall deals. And they were just these crazy overall deals. I mean, I'm sure they, for a while there, the, it was, um, yeah, know, actors had, like actors, actors, actors had network deals, like overall yeah. look deals. Yeah. And stuff. I don't know. I think, I think those piles of stupid money might be disappearing in the corporate conglomeration of our business. 
They look I mean, a little. It, they look a little harder at their spreadsheets than. <laughs> well, I was, I was uh, when I had I had somebody who worked who was the president of Richard Donner's company back in the eighties. Can mm-hmm. you imagine? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And he's like, I was there 10 years. And I go, he goes, what was it like working with Dick on some of these projects? And he's like, this is how it would go. He would read the script. Uh, he got Lethal Weapon. He read it. He said, I want to make this movie. He'd call up the president of Warner's. He goes, I got a script. I want to make it. And the president of Warner's goes, cool. And no discussion of money. Whatever Dick wanted, Dick got. It's like, and never like, oh, you only can make it for 30. And But he was very responsible. He was a hit maker. Yeah, and he, and he had delivered consistently. Right. And he's Richard Donner, for God's sakes. So it, that was, and I'm like, really? He goes, yeah, that's when filmmakers run, ran the studios. Yeah. yeah. Now they don't, you, not, not as much. <laughs> you read the Mike Nichols, um, oh, Mike Nichols. biography. And every, every time they got to the discussion of the catering table, it's a very detailed and beautiful biography. But. <laughs> I would think, man, you could not. I, like, I can't imagine getting that catering budgetness. <laughs> was it that extravagant? Oh, he he had the most spectacular catering. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Lobster and sushi every day. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Steak. <laughs> Nothing but the best. Um, and and last question: three of your favorite films. Oh well, I said them. Um, uh, Rocky. Oh. Right up there. I adore Rocky. There isn't a bad That's scene in Rocky. So there isn't a bad scene in Ordinary People. That movie is just perfect and brilliant. Um I'm I'm going for I'm going for the unexpected ones. I mm-hmm. like look, I love all I, I love all the movies everyone loves. Um but but my little secret treasures, I think truly madly deeply is an incredible I love that film. Gem. Of a film. Oh, Alan Rickman. Um, oh, God bless his heart. Yeah. Isn't that the and, movie? Yeah, he was, yeah, he was in L. Yeah, he was, yeah. He was in that movie, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. Yeah. 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 Oh, such a great film. Um, you know, I, I I mentioned running on empty and witness and um uh the way we were is oh. is just so beautifully written. There's the screenplay. There's an unconventional screenplay. The first Towards time, yeah. I don't know how long it is. Maybe it's the first 20 minutes or flashback. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Great. Maybe it's more. Well, um, I mean, if you want to talk about, you know, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pat you on the back here for a second. I mean, the introduction to Aaron and Aaron Brockovich, it's mm-hmm. it's a I mean, I, I I've had people who are teachers of screenwriting who teach that scene mm-hmm. as a beautiful her almost perfect in, 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 in introduction to a character because you learn so much about yeah. her in a short period of time. It is yeah. condensed. It is wonderful. It is comedic. You feel for it. You connect with because if mm-hmm. that scene doesn't work, you're done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're but done. Julia Roberts, guess what? That seems well, there's there, yeah, there's, and you have yeah, Steven yeah. Soderbergh. And, yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But that you was, know, there's also um I like when movies do are are that's thank you for saying that. But there's also in Silkwood, one of the oh. first things, you know, one of the hardest one of the gnarly things to do is name all your characters, right? Like everybody knows who everyone is, you know, without right. saying, hey, Bill. And early on in Silkwood, the, the they pull up to the the um, Kermagee entrance, and they're all carpooling, and they lean out the window and say their names so they can get into work. It's fantastic. It's just it's so and you good. set it up. It's done. It's perfect. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and then oh, oh the, here's a really good one. Okay, Dog Day Afternoon. Oh, oh um, so good. Frank Pearson came to um, AFI when I was there and he he showed that movie and he talked about it and he talked about the very beginning. And, you know, he comes in and he takes the gun out of the flower box and it gets all messed up and it's very early on. And he was talking about that scene and he said the important thing to do was tell the audience you can laugh in this movie. 
And I had to tell them right up front. And it does that. It says, because if you hadn't had that, if you got well into what happens in that bank and then expected people to laugh, they wouldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. So that's a good, that's a good little lesson there too. Yeah. Cause that's a slightly intense film. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you feel free to laugh when, when you can, because he said right up front, go ahead. You know, Susanna, I can keep talking to you for hours. I appreciate you coming on the show so much. Thank you so much for being on the show, for the amazing work you've done throughout your career and continuing to be an inspiration to so many screenwriters out there, my dear. So thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. It's very nice to talk to you. You have a great day. I want to thank Susanna so much for coming on the show and dropping her knowledge bombs on all of us. Thank you so much, Susanna. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 300. And I want to take a small moment to thank everybody who's been listening for these last 300 episodes. It is a milestone and I really, really appreciate all the support. We plan to continue to bring you amazing conversations. We actually have a few in the pipeline. So get ready for a few more really, really awesome conversations coming up soon. But uh, I just want to say humbly and wholeheartedly thank you so much for allowing me to continue to do this kind of work and bring these amazing conversations to the screenwriting audience and filmmaking audience. Thank you again so much, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 